0: Next Chat is brought to you by Walters. Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters.
1: Reservations can be booked at waltersdc.com slash reservation. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring,
2: the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: And welcome to Natch Chat for Thursday, January 13th. 2022, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of massinsports.com, I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We are back together again, our first episode in the year 2022. Interestingly enough, we are back with an episode for the day on which Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association are holding their first bargaining session since the lockout began on December 2nd. Geez, guys, take your time, OK? No rush here or anything like that. Coming up on this installment of Nats Chat, we will discuss the latest in the lockout. We will discuss some Nats news over the last few weeks, including the Nats reportedly closing in on signing Juan Soto's brother. We have the Hall of Fame vote to discuss, and we have a special guest, ESPN MLB writer and analyst Tim Kirkjian, who will talk Nats and a lot more with us. But Mark, I don't think that this is a coincidence that this episode of the pod is coming out with MLB and the MLBPA talking again. The two sides have been inspired by this podcast. Can we take credit here for reopening the lines of communication?
1: Sure, Al. I mean, there's been so little baseball talk for the last month or so. Maybe they needed us to be talking to remind everyone that, oh yeah, maybe we should actually get together and start doing this again. Huh? What do you know? Look, I'm glad they're talking. That's good news. Do I think much is going to come of this particular session? Probably not, because it's just the first one in a while and it's the first chance to throw some proposals out there that I'm guessing both sides know are not going to be acceptable. And this is the frustrating part of this. We knew this was probably going to take some time. And unfortunately, as much as I want to wish that this could be the start of like some serious negotiations, I don't think we're there yet because unfortunately, they aren't really faced with a tight deadline yet. And I felt like all along, that's the only chance they have is once they're really in danger of losing some games, then things start to heat up and they start making concessions and actually make a deal. And I don't think we're quite there yet. We're maybe only a few weeks away from that. So you would hope that they could get the ball rolling now. But do I think all of a sudden within the next few days or a week, we're going to hear about major progress in a deal? probably not.
0: No, uh, I'm totally with you on that. Just to get sort of the calendar set in your mind, regular season games aren't scheduled to begin until March 31st. So we're more than two months out from something like that happening. You know, we talked about this on the last installment of the podcast. On the one hand, there initially was a lot of optimism of, okay, this lockout is taking place, but we're probably not going to end up missing regular season games. But the more you think about the issues at hand, the more you Just keep being bombarded with this idea that the two sides can't stand each other. And then now you have this of the lockout started on December 2nd and the two sides aren't talking for the first time since January 13th. To me, it is starting to feel like we might miss some time here and that if these sides really are as dug in as they may be and the relationship between MLB and the MLBPA is as bad as it is. I don't think we should at all dismiss the notion of regular season games being missed. I don't like saying that, but it's hard to have a lot of optimism here. And like we've discussed, the issues at stake, these aren't minor things. Like These are basic fundamental tenets of the collective bargaining agreement between MLB and the MLBPA.
1: So I'm not quite at the point yet where I'm really worried about the season starting on time or not, because I think that is the one thing that everybody's going to be motivated nothing good comes of the season not starting on time, okay? Whether they still get 162 games later or whether it's a shortened season, that doesn't benefit anybody. And I think that's ultimately the one thing that maybe gets them to say, okay, we're going to make a deal because if we don't get a deal done whenever that date is, we can't get the season started on time. Now, something to remember is you got to go back from there. It's not like they can make a deal on March 27th, And open the season on March 31st. They need spring training. And so I think that kind of helps give an idea of what the timeline would be. Now, spring training is traditionally six weeks long and around February 15th would be the reporting date. Am I worried about that starting on time? Yes, very much so. Maybe even to the point now where I think it's less likely to start on time. But here's where they have some leeway, perhaps. Six weeks of spring training, while beneficial a lot for pitchers and coaches and managers and front office people like that much time to evaluate everyone. Do you really need six weeks? Most guys wouldn't, especially position players. You could condense it. Now, remember during the pandemic, they had the shortened summer training that took place in every team's own ballpark. That lasted three weeks. And everyone admitted that wasn't enough, that they rushed it and they got into the season and they weren't ready yet. So I think you're looking at a minimum four weeks of spring training to be legitimate. So in order to start the season on time. March 31st. To me, spring training's got to start March 1st. So late February, that's do or die time to me. If they can get it done by then, I think you can have a one-month spring training, start the season on time, everything's okay. Unfortunately, that's still a while from now, and that may keep them from really getting aggressive with these talks because in the back of their minds, they know they're not really up against it quite yet.
0: You also have the offseason which is being wasted away. And the off season is a great time if you're a baseball fan, it's a time when you have a lot of discussion about what will my team do, what won't my team do, what should my team do? And as a baseball fan, you're being robbed of that this off season, and I think that's damaging. I do, you know, In this day and age, it's out of sight, out of mind. And so people don't just sit at home in a corner saying, oh, my God, I can't wait until baseball is back. You find other means of entertainment. You find other means of sort of occupying your time, whether it's following another sport or, you know, watching a new show on Netflix or whatever. And, you know, I don't like this for baseball. You have 100 plus free agents still out there. You know, you could have all kinds of conversations happening right now about what could be going down in free agency and in trades. I mean, I just think about this from a Nationals perspective, right? The Nats have done next to nothing this offseason, right? With the exception of bringing in a few people. We'll get to that momentarily here. But it's like, I think it's bad for the sport already. There already, to me, has been a cost, you know, not to a grand extent, but to a certain extent, with the offseason being lessened. Now, you did have that rush of free agents uh, agreeing on deals prior to the start of the lockout. So that was good. But, you know, I don't expect the lack of an offseason to be a driving force for a deal to get done. But I do think as a fan of the sport, this is not good that we're having all these weeks of late fall and winter go by and there's just zero baseball news to chew on.
1: Yeah, baseball is completely out of sight, out of mind right now in the sports world. Now, you know, obviously this time of year, there's always going to be a lot of attention on football, of course, and basketball and hockey start heating up. So it's not like there's a ton, but you always knew, okay, there's going to be some big signing. You know, Max Scherzer signed in January. I think it was the day of the AFC, uh, NFC championship games. If I remember right, I think I was watching the Packers in the NFC championship when that news broke. So big things happen in January and they're able to, as a sport, have little moments along the way that do get attention. And yes, I think that is important for the sport. You said there's a multiple you know, several hundred free agents who are still going to be looking for jobs. And so that is again why you do need a little bit of a window to allow everybody to sign these players. The Nationals have a bunch of moves they need to make. And do I expect them to be, you know, gung-ho in free agency and spending a ton of money? No. But they have legitimate holes they need to address in the rotation, in the bullpen, at least one more guy in the lineup, if not two. You don't want to be scrambling to do that at the last second before pitchers and catchers report. So yes, you ideally would want there to be some run up and some time for all that. So the question is, do these two sides care enough about that? Or are they just dug in enough to their positions that they would rather sacrifice all those things we're just talking about in exchange for what they think ultimately is best for them in the long run? I don't know the answer to that. But to me, what's sort of the fascinating question here is, is anyone in particular here, I'm thinking the player's side more than the owner's. Are they so intent on really changing the system from what it's been for a long time? And how far are they willing to go to make that happen? If it means that spring training doesn't start on time, if it means the season maybe doesn't start on time, if all these free agents are unemployed, are they willing to sacrifice all that in exchange for whatever it ultimately is they want, which would be a complete overhaul of baseball's financial system? Now, you can argue that's best for the sport in the long run. Maybe it is but at what immediate cost to them. And I think that's the fascinating dilemma that they're going to be facing. Like I said, I think more so the players and the owners, because the owners, if you told them, hey, we'll give you the exact same CBA, we'll just re-up right now, they'd take that in a heartbeat. They would happily do that. Whereas the players are the ones who I think really do want substantial changes.
0: Yeah, we'll see. You know, I don't think there's a big public appetite For like the intricacies of these negotiations. I think we're in a very different time right now. This is not nineteen ninety-four. Baseball is not top of mind for a lot of people. And especially, you know, given the state of the economy, given what everyone has dealt with over the last few years. You want sports as a distraction. You don't want sports as some tedious exercise of economics and what should this side get? What should that side get? You know, the classic thing of billionaires arguing with millionaires. I just there's not a lot of an appetite for this. So if the players want revolution, if the players want to overhaul the system, God bless you. All right. I mean, I want these guys to make as much money as possible, but you ain't winning the public relations battle on that one. Okay. You are not going to get any sympathy from people regarding this. And uh that would be interesting if the players had the Hutzpah to mount that horse of we're gonna change the system in these economic times, man. <laughs> Good luck on that one. That would be a fun follow.
1: And that's why. These are always, there's two parts of this equation. The first is the actual nuts and bolts, the economics of it, the proposals and all that. The other part of it that I don't know that they always get is the PR side of this and how they're coming across to the public and to their fan base. That you can say deep down, yeah, we think you're right, whatever it is that your position is on this. But if they don't do a good enough job of selling it to fans of why this is important enough to risk losing the start of a season... They're not going to get anywhere with it. They're going to have no sympathy for it. And I think that more than anything is where they've struggled over the years is not being able to adequately sell their vision to fans and explain why it is important. Fans are going to take the view that you just said, billionaires versus millionaires. I don't care who wins this thing. I just want the season to start on time.
0: Yeah. And I think a classic example of what you just cited was that horrendous tell us when and where thing that the players did prior to the start of the 2020 season in the middle of the pandemic. It was so disingenuous of, hey, just tell us when and where and we'll show up. No, it wasn't that simple. You know, they tried to come off like, hey, we just want to play ball. You know, let's play too. And it was like, no, that's not what your stance was. And anyone with a brain could see through that. And people did see through that. And so, To me, yeah, I think you're right. I think the players are clueless in a lot of ways. You know, not every player, but like the MOBPA as a whole can really come off as clueless when it comes to public relations. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at Virginia.org.
0: Well, we have had a few Nationals items pop up since we last did an installment of this podcast. The most recent one, well, you tell me, is this a big deal or is this a nothing deal? This Juan Soto brother thing. So we on Monday had multiple reports that Juan Soto's brother, Elian Soto, was close to signing with the Nationals as opposed to signing with the New York Mets. Now, the reason that the Mets were considered to be the favorites in all of this is that Elian Soto on Instagram had posted a video of him wearing full Mets gear and the caption, are you ready for what's coming this year. Apparently, Juan Soto's brother already has been infiltrated by Scott Boris because that's a Scott Boris move. You put up a video like that on Instagram. Now, Leon Soto turned 16 years old on Monday. So, I mean, what he is as a baseball player, what he will be as a baseball player, we have no idea. But is this a thing or is this much ado about nothing? Because this actually became quite a thing on social media, the Nationals closing in on signing Juan Soto's brother.
1: Yeah. So isn't it Ron Rivera who has the thing about It's interesting, but it's not important. This is interesting. It's definitely interesting, especially right now when there's nothing going on. It's very interesting. Is it important? Yeah, I'm not going to go that far yet for a variety of reasons. Let's start with this. He's not even officially eligible to sign with anybody until a year from now. Okay. Now you have to be 16. I don't know the intricacies of the rules here. I know he just turned 16, but my understanding is he's not actually eligible to sign until 2023. So a lot of things can happen between now and then. Now, do teams typically have handshake deals and work things out well in advance of that? Yeah. And it's often commonly known which of these Latin American prospects are going to sign with which teams well in advance of the official announcement of it. So, you know, I think it's a nice thing to know that Juan Soto's brother is going to join the Nationals organization as well and that maybe Juan played a role in that happening and that he's not going to be going to the Mets. now. Do I think that has any bearing on where Juan Soto is going to be playing three years from now? No. (laughs) No, not at all. And I would remind people that the Nationals many years back drafted Brian Harper, Bryce's brother. And he wound up having a decent minor league career and had good numbers at AAA. He was a lefty reliever. And there was even some thought that maybe they'd call him up. And... A lot of people wanted to believe, well, if they do that, that would help convince Bryce to stay here. Well, no, it didn't happen like that. Of course, it didn't happen like that. Brian Harper's out of baseball now, and Bryce Harper is, of course, a Philly. So I don't think any of this has anything to do with where Juan Soto ultimately is calling home for the rest of his baseball career. The only other point here is, you know, Juan Soto got a $1.5 million signing bonus when he signed. It was a big, big deal. They knew he was an elite prospect. His brother is not getting anywhere close to that from what I understand. It's a fairly you know, mundane deal. Doesn't mean he can't still become something, but he's only 16 and who knows. And then on top of all that, we just talked about the CBA. One of the issues that theory they're going to be discussing at some point is how to change the way that teams sign international free agents and whether or not to have an international draft. And if that happened, that would completely change the dynamics here. And it wouldn't matter if he had a handshake agreement with the Nationals or not, he might be subject to a draft by the time any of this comes around. So I think it's interesting. It's fun to speculate and get into a little DC versus New York horror here in the early January, since there's so much going on between those two franchises. But do I think it really means anything in the big picture? Probably not.
0: Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. One thing drives where free agents end up signing, and that is, of course, money. And, you know, nothing... Else really matters that much beyond that. I mean, you know, some guys do want to win, some guys look for opportunity, but money is what it's all about. You know, I thought we saw that with a Max Scherzer thing. For all the talk about him wanting to go where he wants to win, he signed with the Mets. He went to the team that offered him the most money, and he's had every right to do something like that. Also, over the last few weeks, we have had this news of the Nationals bringing in multiple players on minor league deals. When we last did an installment of the Natch Chat podcast, we talked about the Nationals. On November 30th, having announced agreement with free agent infielder Cesar Hernandez on a one year contract. Well, a few weeks later, we had on back to back days news of the Nats agreeing on minor league deals with two other veterans. December 12th, multiple reports the Nats had agreed on a minor league deal with D. Strange Gordon. And then in December, the Nationals, per multiple reports, agreed on a minor league deal with Michael Franco. A few things, I guess, stand out with this. Number one, you know, you're doing this thing of signing older players, guys who have struggled in recent years. This has become such a thing for the Nationals, and it's something that they have, to their credit, done well. Whether it's Azdrubal Cabrera or Gerardo Para or Alcides Escobar, you find the older player who has struggled – And you bring him to you and the guy, for whatever reason, finds the fountain of youth and ends up doing well. But it also stands out that you have in these two guys who can play multiple positions, especially D-Strange Gordon. And, you know, you also have two guys here, obviously, on minor league deals. So I don't think the Nats are like counting on these guys to be on the team in 2022. At the same time, though these guys are options. And, you know, it does make you wonder because we've talked about, well, what will the Nats plan be in free agency this offseason? Could it be that Mike Rizzo has been told, hey, we're not adding to payroll, OK, not with the state of the ball club, not with how much money we're already spending on guys who have had some problems here in recent years and Steven Strasburg and Patrick Corbin. And so this is the kind of thing that Mike is doing, that he's operating now with not much of a budget. And he's having to do things like sign the Michael Franco's and D. strange Gordons of the world. What did you make of the Nats agreeing on deals with those guys?
1: Yeah, I think that is possible what you're suggesting there. Although I would also say that even in years where they've had a high payroll, they've still made signings like this, maybe not as many. But some of those guys you mentioned were brought in on teams that were spending you know, 175, 180 million dollars on payroll. So it's not necessarily evidence that they're not going to spend anything this winter. The payroll is going to go way down. I think we know that. That's just a reflection of where they are in this rebuilding project, that they're not going to spend big right now because it's not worth it to try to bring in a big name guy who's not going to make that much difference this year or maybe even next year. So I think there's, you know, something to that. But I think really what this is is a sign that They're going to try to establish as much depth as they possibly can, have as much inventory of players, and particularly players with some experience. Because we saw late last season when they were putting teams out there that were very inexperienced, what that looked like. And it was pretty painful to watch at times. So if you can bring a bunch of these guys with experience who don't cost anything, there's no commitment to them, to spring training, and you just see what you've got and you're not expecting them all to pan out. But if one or even two of them do, then that's great, and that can actually help you down the road and help make this team a little better, help make it so you don't have to throw as many rookies into the fire, fill some of those gaps that you have. I think it's interesting that they are both you know, infielders who can play multiple positions. I think we're seeing right now, overall, there's a lot of diversity among their infielders and a lot of different ways they can go here with almost everybody can play more than one position and we don't really know who's going to end up where when it's all said and done. I think this is part of that strategy. Bring as many of them as you can to camp, see what you've got, and then figure out who makes the most sense to actually keep on your team.
0: It's not a terrible idea, and if one guy happens to do really well, like so many of these other recently acquired older players who look to be done have done well for the Nats, maybe you could even flip a guy for something. You never know. Michael Franco is going into his age 29 season, played for the Orioles in 2021. He was not good. His wins above replacement for baseball reference was minus 1.6. We came to know Michael Franco, of course, off his years with the Philadelphia Phillies. Franco for the Phillies was a guy who initially was good, but then he never really delivered on the promise that the Phillies thought that he offered. Primarily plays third base, also though has played some first base. D-Strange Gordon, going into his age 34 season, did not play in the majors in the 2021 season. He, in the calendar year of 2021, spent time with four of the five teams in the National League Central. He spent time with Cincinnati, Milwaukee, the Cubs, and Pittsburgh in terms of playing in the minors. Last played in the majors in 2020 for Seattle. But D-Strange Gordon is a guy who can play second base, shortstop, the outfield. So, you know, as we talked about so much last season, right, that Positional flexibility that the Nationals lack. Maybe they can get some of that with these two guys. What do you think Mike Rizzo has been told about the payroll? Because I do think that that's an interesting question and would be very much a tell of what the Nationals are thinking internally with this rebuild or this retool because they don't like to use the word rebuild. You know, the learners to their credit have been big spenders. The Nationals' per cots baseball contracts ranked in the top 10 in the majors in year-end 40-man payroll in each of eight straight years, 2013 through 2020. So if the learners are taking a step back on payroll, I think it is understandable, okay? Like they have spent a lot of money over the last decade or so, but I think that's Actually, a pretty interesting and key aspect of all of this. Obviously, we don't know for certain, but do you think that Rizzo has been told, hey, uh, you're not spending big for at least another offseason or two? Or do you think it's still, hey, go ahead and take some shots and let's try to turn
1: this thing around quickly? I think it's been probably made clear that they're not going to be spending what they have in the most recent years. I don't know that necessarily means that it's a, hey, save every penny you possibly can. We're selling off everything. Obviously, they sold players at the trade deadline, but that wasn't really a financial thing. That was a baseball-driven thing. I think the best way I could put it is this. I think they're willing to spend money if it makes sense, you know, if it's something that works for them in the short and the long term. And where they are right now as a franchise, as we just said, going through now the beginning stages of a rebuild. On top of, we have to acknowledge, you know. Back-to-back years of not making the kind of revenue that they would have expected, especially after winning a World Series, that it's only going to be natural to think that they're going to have to pare back some here. Now, I think that's a defensible position, and if it's for one or two years, I think you can say, okay, I get that. The key is going to be when they are now getting closer to thinking they're contenders again, do they then go back up and become a top-ten spender in the league again? that we'll have to wait and see. Do I think they're all of a sudden going to become a bottom 10 spender? No, probably not. And the fact they still have Strasburg and Corbin under contract, of course, and Soto making good money through arbitration would suggest they're not going to be, you know, all of a sudden turning into the Marlins or the Rays or the Pirates or anything like that. But are they going to be probably more middle of the pack, maybe even below the midway point? Yeah, I could probably see that happening. And that's both directive from ownership, but I think also common sense based on where they're currently at. I'm not as much worried about what is the payroll in 2022. I'm more worried about what is the payroll in 2024? Are they still down at whatever level this is going to be? Or are they spending again because now they actually are in a better position to try to win and it makes sense to spend big?
0: Yeah. I mean, we do see teams that spend big drive down payrolls in times of rebuild. The Cubs did this, the Astros did this, and there is a logic behind it of, hey, It does you no good to spend like $70 million on payroll so you can win 75 games, spend $40 million on payroll, save the tens of millions of dollars, win 60 games, get better draft choices, and then when you're good, then you throw a bunch of money at payroll. But we don't know necessarily that this is going to be that way with the Nationals.
1: Now, the other interesting thing about what you just described, which is something that makes a lot of baseball and financial sense, is exactly one of the major problems that the players have right now with. MLB and owners tanking, and they believe it's a huge problem in the game right now, and they want to rid the sport of that. And what I would say to that, while I get it, and it's maybe not the best look, I think every year it's perfectly reasonable for three or four or five MLB franchises to say, you know what, we're not ready to win we're not in a position to win. Why are we going to spend money just for the sake of it on guys who, like you said, are going to make a difference between winning 65 or 75 games, okay? So I think there is a valid reason for a handful of teams to do that. The key is you don't want the same teams doing it year in and year out. So if, get back to the CBA discussion here, if there are changes that can be made to prevent the same teams repeat offenders of that, then that's fine. But if they think that Every team in baseball is going to have to spend a certain amount of that. You've got to go spend money on middle aged free agents who aren't going to make your team any better. I think that's short sighted on the player's part.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you want a salary floor, then there needs to be a salary cap. okay? like that's how collective bargaining negotiations go. You can't have a salary floor and not have a salary cap. I mean, this goes back to the credibility problem with the MOBPA and the whole, you know, tell us where and when BS that they put out there a few years ago. Every time now that a player doesn't get paid in free agency like he's supposed to, you'll hear these whispers of collusion. That's always like a go-to for the players. Oh, it's collusion. They're colluding against... No, they're not. Teams have gotten smarter on this, okay? Like, it's okay to be smarter. For years, the players got over. For years, a lot of guys got paid more money than they probably should have gotten paid because teams weren't very smart and players were aging differently because of PEDs. Well, now that there's, at least we think, legitimate PED testing... And now that most, if not all, teams have smartened up, teams are doing things in a different and I think more sensible way with payroll. So, you know, that's the way that things have evolved. Like that's not the owners doing things that are immoral. That's not, you know, chicanery on MLB's part. Like I think that's just smart business and smart sports operations. So, yeah, we'll see. But I am interested to see this where the Nats go from a payroll standpoint. One other thing with the Nats, the Sean Nolan thing of a few days ago. So the Kia Tigers of the Korea baseball organization, the KBO on Sunday announced that Sean Nolan had signed a one year deal worth up to $900,000. Now, we came to know Sean Nolan, of course, last season. Nats selected his contract from AAA Rochester in August. He ended up pitching for the Nats over the course of the rest of the season. All things considered, did a pretty good job. Sean Nolan had not pitched in a major league game since October 2015. He last season, in what was his age 31 season, ended up pitching in 10 games, five starts, had an ERA of 439. But he had re-signed with the Nats or at least agreed to re-sign with the Nats on a minor league deal in early November. So I guess is he just allowed to leave that minor league deal and sign with the KBO? And why do you think he did that, left the chance to pitch for the Nats again this coming season to go pitch in Korea? I mean, the Nats are not oozing pitching depth. It would seem to me there was at least a decent chance that Sean Nolan would have seen some more major league time in 2022.
1: Yeah, but there was no guarantee in the contract he signed there. It's guaranteed money. I forget the exact number. I think it works out to like 600000 guaranteed with the chance for more in incentives. And the Nationals can't guarantee him that. He would be back on a minor league deal and maybe you make it. But even if you make it and you're in the big leagues a whole year on a minimum contract, you're not going to even approach a million dollars. So I think it's about security. You know, and good for him if he can do that and his family is comfortable with it, you know, for him to go over there. But yeah, the way that works is a player can go to the team and say, hey, listen, I have an offer. Will you release me from my contract? for that. And, you know, unless a team really desperately says, we need you, we're going to hold you to that contract you signed, especially a non-guaranteed contract, they usually will let him go. And I think that was a show of good faith on the Nats part. Could Sean Nolan have pitched for the Nats this year? Yeah. Would he have made that much of a difference? Probably not. You know, they obviously needed him in September because they were so thin on pitching and he did, you know, under the circumstances, an admirable job. Also will forever be known for retaliating at Freddie Freeman. and getting suspended for it nolan delivers inside and it hit him in the right hip well now
2: now he's risking ejection because he did it a second time because he missed the first time and lance barksdale is coming out to talk to ted barrett the crew chief and second base umpire they 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 could eject him without warning i guess you could say the best thing when you're trying to do that is don't miss the first time right (laughs) he he, and he just got tossed he got ejected
1: I think you can say, hey, good for him. He's got a chance to continue his career, make a little bit more money for a guy who has been trying to get back to the big leagues for a long time. You do see this. And I do think it's interesting. I feel like this winter, we're seeing more of these kind of guys signing in Japan and Korea for some guaranteed money. And maybe that's evidence of their concern about what the state of MLB is going to be this year, both in terms of when the season is going to start and what kind of money there's going to be for players like them who are fringe big leaguers.
0: Sean Nolan got suspended. Davey Martinez got suspended. Will Smith, the instigator, the initiator of everything, did not get suspended.
2: Fastball inside, his Soto in the ribs. That hurt. He's trying to catch his breath right now as he jogs toward first base. Those two have some history uh, from last year, and, and Soto seldom gets hit by a pitch. Smith got upset last year in a game in Atlanta when Soto was standing close to the plate watching him warm up. Basically yelled at him and said, "Get get out of the way!" And then Soto hit a 450 foot home run off of him. And that one got and, him, in and the then r- Smith was screaming at him, got him in the ribs in the the back, the lower part of the back. I'm sure the Nationals are going to take note of that situation.
0: Mob's got to fix that. The guy who starts the problem is someone who also should be punished. If you want to punish the retaliators, fine, but punish the instigator too. That Will Smith got off and Sean Nolan got suspended. I thought was ridiculous, but anyway.
4: First inning of the game and obviously it's super humid out compared to places we've been playing and you know it just happens balls slip out of your you know out of your hand. Rosin for me doesn't do much.
1: Hey Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in two thousand five, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timelines. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. Basics 3 2 again. There's a swing and a hot fly ball
0: right center field. Back it goes. Racing back. Logan jumping up and that ball is gone.
4: 756.
0: All right. We are closing in on a big day on the baseball calendar. And this day has nothing to do with uh, MOB and the MOBPA. So this day will be happening. January 25th, we will learn the results of the latest rounds of voting for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And uh, this is a really interesting year. I mean, every year is interesting, but this year is a big year. Because you have among the first time candidates, David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez. You have among those in their 10th and final years of eligibility on the BBWAA ballot, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, Kurt Schilling as well. You know, not necessarily a PED guy, but a controversial guy. You, to me, still have people who should be in but aren't in, guys like Billy Wagner and Andrew Jones and Scott Rowland. You are a voter for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I know you're not publicly revealing whom you voted for until January 25th. But when it comes to, I guess let's start with the PED guys. Do you think Bonds and Clemens are going to get in or do you think that they won't be? We know some of the votes because some people do put their votes out there before January 25th. Where do you think we're going specifically with Bonds and Clemens?
1: Yeah. So let me start by just saying that I had been dreading this ballot for a long time because I knew this was this convergence of – those guys who are in their 10th and final year that we've been agonizing over for a full decade, plus the addition of David Ortiz, Alex Rodriguez, plus these other just like close calls who have been on the ballot for a while now. And so I really was not looking forward to this one. And it was an agonizing process. And I turned my ballot in in late December. And, you know, I can tell you that. I never feel 100% confident when I stick that envelope in the mail, but I felt less than wherever percentage I usually am this year because there's just so much gray area here and so much that you don't really know what the right decision is. And, you know, I'll actually be glad when we get to next year and we don't have some of those decisions to make anymore. I got tired of internally and externally debating bonds and Clemens in particular and certainly the shilling one, you know. Like I said, I'm not going to reveal my ballot until the uh, announcement of who's in on the 25th, and I'll publish my full column and I give my full explanation. But those of you who followed me know that I have not voted for players who there is substantial evidence of PED use. And I do that because the Hall of Fame instructs us not to consider among their playing performance. In addition to that, we are to consider their character, integrity, and sportsmanship. And to me, anyone who knowingly cheated the rules of the game and broke U.S. law, even if there wasn't testing in the game at the time, if they did that, it's hard for me to say that they displayed the integrity and sportsmanship and character that the Hall of Fame is instructing us to consider. So for nine years, I did not vote for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. I, every year, re you know, looked at it again, reconsidered it. I did that again this year. I'll let you wait and see what my final decision was. But based on the results we've seen so far and really the momentum of the last couple of years, I don't think they're getting there. 75% is a big number to get to. And I do feel like even though it's been slowly moving towards more acceptance of PED guys, I don't think enough will have changed their minds in time to get them in. And honestly, I don't think they're ever getting in if they don't get on this ballot because I don't think any veterans committee made up of former Hall of Famers is going to put them in. They, I think, have been at the forefront of not wanting steroid guys in with them. So I think it's the end of the road for Bonds and Clemens. It's a sad thing. You know, I don't think anybody wants this to be the end result of it, but I think we've kind of seen this coming for a while now.
0: Yeah, the PED thing to me is simple, and that is there is no right answer. There never will be a right answer. Every line of thinking is flawed in terms of you put in people who you think did it. Well, how do you know who did it? You put in people who tested positive. Well, okay, but other people we pretty clearly know did use PEDs, never tested positive. You draw a line in the testing era and you say, well, when the testing era started, that's when I start punishing people for PEDs. There are all kinds of problems with that. There is no right answer. To me, no Hall of Fame voter should be vilified for his or her stance on the PED guys because every line of thinking flawed, which you guys have to do to try to sort through this mess, which MOB and the Hall of Fame have essentially washed their hands of and said, "Okay, you guys deal with it. It's an impossible task. What ends up happening is writers and media members Have to become like narcs, and you have to try to figure out, okay, when did he start using drugs, or did he use drugs? How do you know? To me, you know, guys like Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza, how do you know? There are so many suspicions about those guys, but there's no proof. So what do you do? Do you assume they used? Because that doesn't seem very fair. I think it's really difficult. The other thing that always cracks me up is that people will say, well, you know, everyone was doing it. Everyone wasn't doing it, okay? Like, (laughs) There's a reason that the Fred McGriff's of the world are out there. Not everyone was doing it. And the reality is that using steroids in MLB became illegal in June of 91 per a memo from then Commissioner Faye Vincent. It was against the rules of the game. And just because MLB wasn't testing doesn't mean this wasn't against the rules. There's a reason that guys who clearly juiced to this day won't talk about it. They're ashamed of it. You know, Mark McGuire to this day, well, I was trying to uh, get uh, healthy from an injury. Like, you know, fine.
2: Like I've said earlier, I'm not going to go into the past and talk about my past.
0: If it was a thing that everybody was doing, guys would openly talk about it. Nobody does that. Okay, they understand that it was cheating. And look, I don't think that juicing necessarily makes you a terrible person, but it was against the rules of the game. So it's tough. You guys are put in a really tough spot. I'm really interested to see what happens with somebody like a David Ortiz, because there seems to be a lot of forgiveness for him for various reasons, including that, you know, his uh, positive test was in supposed anonymous testing. So for some reason, that makes it okay. People's logic with this is just all over the map. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. But, yeah, it's been really interesting following this over the last decade. And it's been interesting to me, too, that, again, MLB and the Hall of Fame have washed their hands they don't want to deal with this. They're like, you guys deal with it. And of course, there is no perfect way to deal with it. So we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. And you just made some great arguments and things that I have been saying myself and believing myself for a while now. And the main point, like you just said, is I think all of us would welcome some guidance from MLB and particularly the Hall of Fame. If they told us, you know what, we only want you to consider playing performance. Okay, fine. You know what, that takes it out of the equation. We'll put everyone in who we think played well enough deserve to be in the hall of fame. That's fine. But if you're going to keep that rule in there and you can say, well, it was put in by Judge Landis a century ago and it really wasn't intended for this or that. Okay. Fine. But you haven't changed the language of it at all. So you're leaving it to us to interpret what you think you mean from that. And I can tell you that all the signs, you know, hidden that we've received from the hall of fame and particularly from the hall of famers themselves, remember the late Joe Morgan's letter that he put out a few years back says to me, they don't want the steroid guys in. Okay. I keep coming back to that also. Who really wants to see the Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens induction ceremony? Is that something we're all just like clamoring for? Great TV, I guess, great theater, but are we just itching to celebrate these guys' careers? And you know, the other thing is you can still be remembered as one of the greats in baseball history and even have artifacts and mentions in the hall of fame without actually being inducted into the hall of fame. They're not tied together. They're mutually exclusive. They can be separate from each other. So I don't think it's the end of the world if they aren't inducted. We still acknowledge what they did. They're still immortalized in different ways in baseball history and in the Hall of Fame. And the last point I make is this. There are some who say, I'll vote for particularly Bonds and Clemens because their alleged steroid use came late in their careers and they had already established themselves as Hall of Famers at that point. They didn't become Hall of Famers because of steroids. Okay, to me... I think it's impossible to try to figure out what difference did it make. Well, this added this many home runs to your total or whatever else. No, to me, it's not about that. It's about the integrity. Did you do it? Did you knowingly break the rules, break the law? And like you just said, if it wasn't a big deal, if they didn't think what they were doing was wrong, why go to such lengths over all these years to hide it or to not acknowledge that you did it? Guys
0: like Bonds and McGuire and others to me are cowards because I would respect them more if they came out and said, yeah, I did it. And here's why I did it. And there's an argument to be made. Look, there are people who think this stuff should be legal, okay? That if you use something like human growth hormone under the supervision of a doctor, it can actually do a lot of good for you and the potential negative side effects can be mitigated. So there is an argument to be made for this stuff, but nobody ever wants to make that. They're all afraid, you know, because they know what they did was wrong. They know what they did was against the rules of the game. And I think you touched on something that's also key, and that is not putting someone in the Hall of Fame is not putting that person in prison. You're simply choosing not to honor that person, which is fine. You're not saying that person is an awful human being. You're not saying that that person, you know, deserves to burn in the fires of hell. You're just saying, I choose not to honor you. And that's okay. To me, there's nothing wrong with something like that. One more item before we get to our special guest, Tim Kirkjian. John Lester is retiring. Former Washington National, John Lester. You know, we were just talking about the PED guys. To me, you already have a PED guy in the Hall of Fame, and Iván Rodriguez. John Lester goes into that Iván Rodriguez category of all-time great players who was with the Nationals toward the end, the very end.
2: One ball, two strike, pitch to the ball, swing and a miss. Second time tonight, John Lester gets Adam Duvall on an an 87-mile-an-hour cutter, his sixth strikeout of the ballgame, tying his season high June 19th against the Mets.
0: You know, look, John Lester, we know what ended up happening with him in the 2021 season. Things did not go so well. But if you're a Nats fan, I think the name John Lester puts a smile on your face because you got Lane Thomas out of it. But when we talk Hall of Fame, I don't know about you, to me, I think there's a great case for John Lester in... I actually would be surprised if he doesn't make the Hall of Fame. He's one of the great postseason pitchers of the last generation. He's a guy who had great success with multiple franchises, multiple flagship franchises in Boston and the Cubs. He had a lengthy career. I mean, I don't know if you've like evaluated him just yet, but it seems to me this guy is going to be or at least should be a Hall of Famer.
1: Yeah, I haven't looked at it real deeply yet, but my first instinct is to say, yeah, I think there's a strong case there. And pitchers are tough because it's so hard to compare modern pitchers with even guys from 20, 30 years ago because it's changed so much. The workload has changed. The career totals are just impossible to measure up with the guys of the 70s and 80s for what they are now. So we do have to sort of recalibrate our standards for them. But I think what Lester has that's going to help him is number one, longevity, number two, consistency. And number three, those big iconic moments, like you said, being a really big part of three World Series champions. And, you know, let's be honest with two franchises that those World Series meant a ton to them, particularly the Cubs, because he was a part of that breaking of the curse there. So I think you put all those together and there's a real compelling argument for him. And so maybe he will end up as the second player to have a plaque that says Washington N.L., on it along with Yvonne Rodriguez. I think the first one who will be wearing a Nationals cap is not John Lester. I'm thinking it's probably Max Scherzer, although we still don't know how that career is going to turn out in the end. But yeah, I think probably when you look at the bulk of John Lester's career, and we'll forget the last two years because they really weren't that great, we're going to think of him as being a Hall of Famer worthy of induction in Cooperstown.
0: Now, the Nationals honored. Ivan Rodriguez because he played for them and made the Hall of Fame? Are the Nationals going to have to honor John Lester because of this dopey policy of if you played for us and make the Hall of Fame, we have to honor you? Please tell me we're not going to do a John Lester day at Nationals Park.
1: I don't know the answer to that. and It's a great question. And this is why it's so complicated when it comes to things like retiring numbers and putting names on a wall of fame and all this stuff. You try to establish criteria that you think make sense and you have to think 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years down the road, is this going to hold up whatever these criteria are? Now, you're right. They have above the president's club area behind home plate, all the senators and Homestead Grays and even Montreal Expos who are in the Hall of Fame, have their name on there. And so Ivan Rodriguez is the only one that has the Curly W national logo there. And by that logic, yes, John Lester, in theory, should be included there for his four months and five ERA or whatever it was. I don't know the right answer to that one, but that's a fascinating question. And they may have to rethink how they're going to do this. This is a topic for another day, but I was thinking just the other day, this might be something I write about at some point as we're looking for topics, is how do you decide which nationals of this era deserve to have their numbers retired? You know Who makes that cut? Because there's a very high bar you can set where it's only a couple of guys, and then you drop it just a little bit, and there's about four or five more guys that can make the argument for it. And so what do you do? And the fact they already put Jason Worth not with his number, retired, but he's up there in the right field. Like I said, these are things you have to consider because these are not short-term things. These are long-term, lifelong ramifications. And whatever you do, you better make sure that it will hold up over the test of time because it may feel right in the moment, but 50 years from now, we may be looking back and saying, wait, why is this guy on here?
0: It makes no sense. The Nationals have got to change that policy. Ivan Rodriguez played for the Nats in 2010 and 2011. His numbers were terrible. Those teams weren't very good. The 2011 team was okay, I guess, but like, come on. I mean, that he is honored like that. I mean, let the Texas Rangers honor Ivan Rodriguez. Let the Detroit Tigers honor Pudge Rodriguez. The Nats had no business doing something like that. All right, time now for our special guest, the great Tim Kirkjian. All right. Right now, we are very pleased to welcome to the Nats Chat podcast a special guest. He is the 2022 winner of the BBWAA Career Excellence Award, with which he'll be honored during the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museums Induction Weekend, July 22nd through the 25th, in Cooperstown, New York. He is ESPN MLB writer and analyst Tim Kirkjian, one of the most familiar names in. Voices in Baseball. He's a local. He went to Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda and then to the University of Maryland. Tim, congrats on the honor and thanks so much for coming on. How are you?
4: I'm great, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. And you're right, very much a local guy here. I love this area. I hope I live the rest of my life here. And uh, I can tell you a lot of stories about growing up around here. Things have really changed, but in a lot of ways for the better
0: you get 211 votes of 375 possible votes. That's a nice percentage. There was no like Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens like uh, issue here with you. What does this award mean to you?
4: Well, there's no, no steroid issue here. I weigh 140 pounds. So we know I'm not doing anything illegal. What this means to me is, well, professionally, it means just everything. I mean, it's been the most overpowering, overwhelming experience of my entire life. Jason Stark and Dan Shaughnessy, my dear friends, called me the day before to tell me, if you win, here's what you should expect to happen. And even they understated it because I I still can't believe what that first day was like, what that first week was like, and what still is going on in my life. It's the most honored I've ever been professionally about anything, and I must tell you, I shouldn't, but the day after I won the award, Johnny Bench called me at home at 8.30 in the morning and said, welcome to the club. You're one of us now. And I was starting to cry again. Johnny Bench, the greatest catcher of all time, called me at home. Now, let's be clear. I'm not one of them. I'm not in their club. But in a way, we're kind of joined a little bit from a great distance. And it meant the world to me that Johnny Bench would call. I heard from a bunch of other friends, family, everything. It's been
1: just as surreal last five weeks. I know it's always awkward because it's not the same as the players and you are not technically, you know, a hall of famer, but you know what? For people in our profession, you are a hall of famer and we all knew it for a long time. And it was really enjoyable for all of us to see that finally officially recognized. And it means a lot. I think that it's, one of us local. We haven't had someone from this area in quite a long time to get this honor. And that means something. And like you said, you've lived your whole life here in suburban Maryland, just outside DC, grew up watching the senators and caring about them. And I've got to imagine for you, just thinking about the last couple of years of what you've seen between a Washington baseball team winning the world series. And now you getting voted into the hall of fame Like, what would Tim Kirchner in 1972, after the senators left for Texas, what would you have thought about those two possibilities?
4: (laughs) They were both impossible at that point. I literally cried when the senators left town,
2: because
4: they were my team. And even though they were terrible for most of my upbringing, the lesson is, I'd much rather have a terrible team than no team at all. We went 34 years without one until the Nationals came back. And When the Nationals won, look, you guys know this. We're not rooting for anyone. I can't root for anybody. I can root at times for a great story. And for the Washington baseball team to win for the first time since 1924, I mean, that is a tremendous story. And To personalize it a little bit, I can't get over the fact that I went to Walter Johnson High School named after the greatest pitcher of all time. And I found this out a couple of years ago when I wrote about this, when the Nationals were on the verge of winning the World Series. Walter Johnson, who, of course, grew up in Bethesda or lived in Bethesda, my hometown, he's buried in Rockville, which is, you know, the next town over. He used to live also in Germantown, the next town over. And I just found this out. He died on December 10th, 1946. And I was born on December 10th, 1956. So all these connections with me and Walter Johnson High School, not to mention that I worked for the school paper, it was called The Pitch. I, I did a little bit of work for the yearbook. It was called The Windup. So I, I just felt like I, I've always had this connection to baseball, especially with the house I grew up in. But when you go to Walter Johnson High School, there's a little bit of destiny involved that when you leave, you got to try to make a career out of baseball. And fortunately, so fortunately, I did.
0: Washington, D.C. has such a unique baseball history. You know, some of it isn't good, as we know, with the Senators twice leaving. But we know that there were a lot of reasons behind that. We know that the makeup of this area has changed so much since the Senators left for that second time. Now, of course, we have the Nationals. You know, the state of the team right now maybe isn't picture perfect, but a lot of success for about a decade. Bunch of playoff appearances, eventually the World Series title. How would you describe Washington, D.C. as a baseball city? Every baseball city is different What comes to your mind when you think about Washington, D.C. as a baseball city?
4: Well, I think it's an underrated baseball city because let's face it, let's look at the history of baseball in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of bad teams over the years. And to lose two teams like that, that simply wasn't fair. The ballpark wasn't in a great spot. It wasn't. It was a great ballpark at the time. But I think it gets a bad rap because anyone that says, oh, two teams left must be a terrible baseball town. The Nationals proved that this is a good baseball town when you put a good product on the field. It's also a very transient town. I'm really surprised living here in Gaithersburg, Darnstown, that there are people on my street who are Oriole fans still. There are houses on my street where there are Oriole fans and Nationals fans in the same house. Stupid me who's 65, grew up watching the Senators play. I just assume when the Nationals came back that everyone in this area would be a Nationals fan. But I forgot that most people aren't as old as me. They weren't around when the Senators were here. They don't even know who the Senators are. But I think the Nationals, again, proved what a great baseball town this could be. And I was in the Safeway like three years ago, and this woman comes up to me. She's a neighborhood lady that we all know, and she's great. And she grabs me in the frozen food aisle and says, now I know what you've been living for the last 38 years. I love the Nationals. I can't live without baseball. I watch every single night. So here's one woman, and there were many, many others, I'm sure, that got grabbed by baseball, and now she's with it forever. That happened to me when I was four. It happened to her when she was 54, but better late than never. That's why we love baseball, and that's why we love baseball in Washington, D.C.
1: And I remember thinking when the team first got here and thinking about, okay, who are the fans going to be, and where are they going to come from, and are they going to change allegiances from someone else? I remember thinking, you know, it takes a generation. It's going to take people, whether it's like yourself, maybe, who had lived here all along, and... Rediscovered a DC team or people who changed their affiliation or young kids who will now grow up with a team of their own. But you have to go through it. It doesn't just happen immediately. And most importantly, you have to go through the ups and the downs <laughs> in particular to really appreciate it. And I think that's why 2019 was so special is that you have those of like yourself who really knew the long-term history of the downs to now celebrate. But even those who only became fans in 2005 had gotten to experience some pretty big highs and lows before the 2019 championship, and that made it mean so much. And so what I'm curious is now they should have had this great honeymoon period. And unfortunately, because of COVID and then what's happened in the baseball world the last two years and with that franchise, they didn't get to have it. And now it's almost like they're starting over again. And I'm wondering... From the outside, what was your perspective of what they wound up doing this year, the decisions they had to make? Do you understand why they did it? Do you wish it didn't have to come to that?
4: Well, I certainly wish it didn't have to come to that. I wish Max Scherzer would be starting opening day, whenever that's going to be this year. I wish Trey Turner was going to be the everyday shortstop, because I don't think it's ever healthy when a team sells off like the Nationals did. There's also this rule in baseball that, not a rule, but if you're going to sell off, you got to go all the way. You got to completely dismantle it. This is what the Astros did, ended up winning a World Series. What the Cubs did, ended up winning a World Series. And it took them longer than people thought to get back to good again. So as much as I say, I hate what happened and I don't like what happened, I think it was the only way to go. Because who knows where Trey Turner is going to be on the open market after this year. Look what Max Scherzer got in a three-year deal. That's just unbelievable. So I don't think you can question the Nationals for all the money they spent to get Scherzer, re-sign Strasburg, Harper they offered, tons to, and at times you just got to say, all right, we're not going to win anymore, not for a few years. So the best way to do it is to save some money, develop some players, and they got some good kids coming up.
0: There are many great players in Major League Baseball. Is Juan Soto the best? Is he the best player in the sport, in your opinion?
4: I think he's, I know he's the best hitter in the sport, but Mike Trout, for me, is still the best player in the sport because he plays center field. He's a superior defensive player to Soto. He runs better than Soto, but Juan Soto is six years younger, seven years younger, And as a hitter, I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody that young who's been that good. I mean, you know, three players in the history of baseball have hit cleanup in a World Series game at age 20. Ty Cobb, Miguel Cabrera, and Juan Soto. That's the list. I'll never forget asking... Mark Reynolds, who Mark, we all know, is one of our favorite guys, funnier than hell, and great interview on anything. So I asked him about Soto and he goes, I've never seen anyone who has plate discipline like he does. And he goes, he's got way better plate discipline and pitch recognition than I've ever had. And he's 19 years old and I'm 32. That's how good Soto is. And that's the kind of thing that you simply can't teach. You either have that understanding or you don't. He had it the first day he got to the big leagues. He will have it for the rest of his career. I just hope he sees enough pitches, you know, to do real, real damage because my dad told me stories and stories and stories about Ted Williams coming up and Juan Soto might be the closest thing as far as pure hitters go to ted williams
1: yeah the patience tim is just what astounds me i mean even last year after the trade-off after he's got very little protection other than josh bell and teams are deciding we're not going to go after you he didn't expand the zone he just kept taking his walks he wound up setting a club record for walks and had an on-base percentage over 500 in the second half of the season it was insane but he is so disciplined to be able to do that i think is just remarkable now unfortunately the way that baseball is right now people already are going to be worried about what's going to happen three years from now and they can't just appreciate what they have in juan soto given what we've seen the nationals do do you think it's reasonable to think that they could convince him to resign now or do you feel like the way the business is the way this works we're just going to have to wait until his final year and then hope that something comes together
4: Well, (laughs) logically, they should sign him as soon as possible so he doesn't get close to free agency because once he does, the teams with more money and there are franchises with more money than the Nationals are going to overwhelm him because he's going to be a free agent at 25 years old with a track record that virtually no one's ever had offensively at that age. But it's easy to say, yeah, just get him signed now, which again is another reason they unloaded Everything at the trade deadline, Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, if you're going to pay Juan Soto, you got to save some money somewhere else. So I hope against hope that the Nationals re-sign him because it's better for the game that teams build around their best players. And this is one of the great franchise players we've ever seen already. And uh, But with the labor situation the way it is, everything is way up in the air. Regarding the
0: aesthetics of baseball in 2022, so much conversation in recent years, right, about pace of play and length of games and lack of balls in play through true outcomes, et cetera. Commissioner Tim Kirkjian, what, if any, changes would you want to enact to try to make baseball better, the way it's played at the major league level better?
4: Look, I don't think there's a quick fix to anything. If we're going to put more balls in play, We're going to have to go to the batting cage with a bunch of 10- and 12-year-olds and say, all right, this is the way we're going to teach it now. We're not going to be interested in getting every ball up in the air. A really hard ground ball hit over there can really help you. And on the mound, we're going to teach our kids. It's not the kid that throws the hardest or has the best spin rate. It's the one that knows how to get people out. That's where the change has to begin. But that's going to take, Mark, you talked about a generational, it's going to take a generation to change all of that because it's too late for so many of our players. Adam Dunn, one of my all-time favorite players, if you had told him his last two years, we want you to start hitting the ball to the opposite field, he would say, I've never done that. What makes you think I could do that now facing Chris Sale? That's not going to happen. I understand that. But to answer your question, if I were the commissioner, I would at least look at, should we do something with the shifting? Mark Teixeira, who's a great player, has convinced me that it's worth looking at starting every play with all four infielders on the dirt. Two on the right side a second, two on the left side a second. Now the hitter can look out at the field and see, hey, I might be able to hit it over there and actually get a hit. The way it's set up now with all the shifting, a big left-handed hitter looks at that shift, three guys on the right side and says, I can't hit it through there. It's filled. So my only hope is to hit it over the shift. And that's where your launch angle comes from. That's where you swing as hard as you can. That's where the walks, strikeouts, and home runs come from. If that's what we're trying to get away from, then maybe we have to open up the field For our hitters, because right now, most of them are overmatched against the pitching they see, and they're overmatched even more that they've been hitting a certain way for 10, 15 years. And now we want them to change in the middle of a major league game and try to get a hit off of Jacob deGrom. I don't think that's going to happen.
1: It's funny you mentioned Adam Dunn, because I remember thinking watching him his two years here. My God, this guy is so unusual. All he does is hit homers, draw walks and strike out. Nobody's like him. And who would have thought 10 years later that's exactly what the modern model of a professional hitter is? We just didn't realize it at the time, perhaps. I wanted to ask you before we wrap up about the labor negotiations. You don't have to get into the nuts and bolts of it, but I'm curious about your perspective because of this. The last time we were in this position, Al and I were teenagers. So we were young fans who were hurt by the fact that they lost the World Series in 94 and everything that came from it. But you were covering it and you know what these relationships are like. And I'm curious. How would you compare the relationship between players and owners right now versus what it was like back then? We thought, at least from the outside back then, that it could never be that bad again, that that would be the end times the worst. Is it approaching that again? Because it feels like it's at least as close to that as it's been since.
4: I covered the 81 strike. <laughs> if you want some hatred, that's Ray Greeby against Marvin Miller. And man, that was a 12-round heavyweight fight. And I was scared to death of both of those guys as I tried to cover that because, A, I was overmatched with the subject matter. And B, there were some nasty things going on. 94-95 wasn't a whole lot better. The hatred between the two sides. I don't sense the same Hatred, But I sense that the gap between the two is just as large as it was in 81 and 94, 95. And that worries me tremendously. I'm hoping, of course, though, that even though these two sides don't have like deal makers like we used to have in 81 and 94, at least there were guys in the room who knew how to make a big deal and finish a labor negotiation. I'm not sure all the parties are in that spot right now. And I still think the gap can be bridged because I think everyone has to look at this and say, there is so much money to be lost If we don't come up with an agreement, the same money wasn't there in 81 or even 94, 95. But now it's completely outrageous how much money's going to be lost for all sides. So that's my hope. But we have a lot of work to do before that's done. And I just hope everyone recognizes, like when Tom Glavin in 2001 walked into that room with the union leaders and his constituency with him and said, fellas, we can't do this again. We can't have another work stoppage. The game's not going to be able to sustain it this time. I hope someone steps forward. Maybe someone from the past and says, we can't let this happen again because the game might not rebound this time. I hope everyone recognizes that. And I think it's going to take an older hand to come in and remind some people of what it was like in 81, what it was like in 94, 95.
0: Very well said. Tim, congrats again on the honor, the BBWAA Career Excellence Award. Enjoy the induction. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you so much for coming on.
4: Thank you, Al. Thank you, Mark. I'll talk to you guys soon.
0: That'll do it for this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Let us know what you think, your thoughts on the Nationals, your thoughts on the labor situation. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, a few things regarding that. So if you are interested in advertising on the Nats Chat Podcast, let the man behind this pod know, Tim Shovers. Again, the email address is NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Also, we are either going to come out with a new Nats Chat Podcast, t-shirt or a Nats Chat Podcast cap. We're not sure which one you guys want more. So tell us, would you be more interested in a newly designed Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt or a Nats Chat Podcast hat? Let us know. Again, you can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email us NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself an existing Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast dot, dot side. Also, if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating. If you haven't yet done that, you can now actually rate podcasts on Spotify. So if you use Spotify, be aware of that. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please write a brief one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. If you haven't yet done that. I know these things can seem kind of silly, these ratings and reviews, but they do help out the podcast a lot. And we very much appreciate you guys for doing those things. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
2: Lester swings and drives one of deep center field. This is way back. This ball is gone. hit in a Nationals uniform. 419 feet to dead center for Leicester. It's now the Nationals 12 and the Marlins nothing. Unbelievable.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.